reading from today is from Genesis 39, verses 1 through 6, and it reads, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything that he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his house, household and all that he owned, the, the blessing of the, the, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Well, good morning. Uh, my name, if we haven't met, is James Walden. I'm one of the elders here. And uh, I would want to encourage you, if you haven't already this morning, if we can, Miranda, put back on the screen the uh, prayer request link. Uh, sorry to throw that at you. Um, I'd like to ask you to do something I, I, w I don't ever ask, to pull out your phones and to go to this link and uh, riverside.org forward slash prayer and fill in maybe something you're grateful for that God has done recently. Maybe it's an answer to prayer or maybe it was just God blessed you and you weren't even asking for it. Just a sign of God's faithfulness. Uh, this helps us as elders know how to pray and give thanks. I also kind of want to break the system and see if we can break the internet this morning uh, with everyone giving their uh, gratitude. But also, I, I encourage you to, to ask for a prayer request. What, there is, as, uh, as Stephen shared, as the saints, we often go through difficult things. And um, uh, both as individuals and as, 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 a, as a nation, uh, yesterday marked 20 years since 9-11, uh, continues to ring out uh, in our memories, in our hearts, and has affected some of us more deeply. And so perhaps uh, something uh, uh, on that front uh, uh, that's beyond just our own individual lives, but I encourage you to consider how you can invite others to be praying for hardships, how you can be bringing them to the Lord, and then inviting others to bring them with you. So as you're doing that, I, I want to suggest, by way of framing this morning's message, that we as Christians, let alone American Christians, uh, or, or Americans, we as American Christians, I think, have a bit of a dysfunctional relationship to our suffering. On the, I think a lot of this comes back to the fact that suffering for us is seen as exceptional. In a culture of comfort and affluence, it seems to be abnormal to suffer. And so with our suffering comes often a sense of shame. I shouldn't be suffering, and I am. What's wrong with me? On the flip side, sometimes suffering is used as a sort of status marker. A philosophy professor here at USC uh, said recently, the American ideal used to be the rugged individual, but now it seems to be the American ideal is the victim. 
And that might seem like two very extreme positions, to be ashamed of our suffering or to utilize our suffering as a platform. But in fact, shame and pride are often two sides of the same coin. And I want to propose a superior view of suffering, a better view for the people of God. Uh, And I'm going to use the term that one Bible teacher uh, named Paul Miller uses to summarize the gospel's view of suffering. It's called the J-curve. And this is modeled in the life of Jesus. You'll see a picture of the J-curve on the screen. Jesus is the, the paramount example of the J-curve understanding of suffering for the saints, for the people of God. And you see sort of on the left-hand side of the J, the shorter side, this could be understood as life as normal, life as mortals, mere mortals living in the world, corruptible, fallible, but nevertheless alive. (laughs) And the, the high right side of the curve could be understood as the resurrection life, the life incorruptible, life immortal eternal life. And we'd like to think that we can sort of leap from regular life into eternal life. But what Jesus both teaches and embodies is that the only way to this life incorruptible, to this eternal life, is downward through suffering into the dust of death. And only then can we emerge into resurrection life. This, of course, is the trajectory of Jesus' life. Theologians refer to it as the humiliation of Christ. It began with His incarnation. Though He was equal with God, did not consider that something to be grasped, but emptied Himself. And then, at His mistrial, at His false condemnation, with His being beaten and mocked and spat upon, and then finally crucified on the cross, He suffered humiliation at the deepest level, stripped naked, bleeding out, while others laughed at him. And then he was buried. He descended all the way to the realm of the dead, to Sheol, to the grave. Utter humiliation. But it is only through this path of death that resurrection comes. And on the third day, as we sang, Christ rose again. Well, all of the saints follow this pattern of Jesus. Joseph in our text will follow this J-curve pattern. He will go from uh, the pit in Dothan where he was sold into slavery into the house of Potiphar as a slave. And though he ascends within the ranks, very quickly he is descending again into the pit of the Egyptian royal dungeon. He goes down, down, before he comes up. This will prefigure Israel's experience in Egypt. They come there as visitors, as guests of Egypt to survive the famine. They stay in this ghetto of Goshen and they grow and the Lord blesses them. But then another Pharaoh comes who does not remember Joseph. And quickly, the saints become slaves. They go down, down, until God raises up Moses, who redeems them out of the house of slavery and out of the house of Egypt, not only liberating them, but bringing them into the promised land of Israel. 
We likewise have J-curves. Some of them are massive J-curves, like that diagnosis of cancer. Some are just smaller J-curves, like on the way here, losing your temper with the kids in the car. But there are all kinds of J-curves we endure. Suffering is not abnormal or exceptional. It is the norm. And it is the means by which, if we surrender ourselves to Christ in it, that we attain richer life with God and with each other. Judah will also have a J-curve experience, as we'll see this morning. But unlike Joseph, who is truly a victim of others inflicting punishment or, or sins upon him, Judah will suffer, and he will cause many others to suffer. Judah will suffer by his own folly which perhaps is the worst kind of suffering. It's one thing to suffer because someone else is a fool. Isn't it more shameful to us when we suffer because I'm a fool and I've made bad choices? But even here, Judah's downward curve leads to resurrection. So that in all of our sufferings, whether because it's our own fault, directly or indirectly, or someone else's, God gives us hope that our sufferings are not without purpose and that they will bring us to a deeper and richer life so that we can say like Paul in all that we do and experience in this life I want to know him in the power of his resurrection I want to share in his sufferings so that somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead would you pray with me Father, we thank You that Jesus suffered so that we might suffer with Him with not in, without hope or despair or purposelessness, but with hope. And I pray as we walk through these difficult passages this morning, Lord, as we wrestle, Lord, You would call us into a deeper communion with Yourself. Would you do this work for your glory and for our joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we read already in chapters 39, verse 1, Joseph goes down to Egypt. Well, chapter 38, which I suggest is a parallel to 39, in which a lot like we saw with Abraham and Lot, the author is contrasting and comparing brother Judah to Joseph. And just as Joseph goes down against his will from the promised land, we read in 38 verse 1. We're going to be doing a lot of back and forth between 38 and 39, so look at 38 verse 1 with me. It happened at that time that Judah, right after the sale, the sale of Joseph into slavery, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers. Where he was was at uh, he was in the promised land at Migdal Eder. This tower of Eder it was where he was with his father's house. And he's left it. And he goes down. And that's a geographic reference. But in our context, it also connotes his spiritual descent. He's going down the J-curve. He doesn't know it yet. But he's going down. He makes a bad decision to leave the promised land. And it goes on to say there, he, he, he turns aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And there Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. 
He took her and went into her. A rather crass description of marriage, but such seems to be the nature of his marriage. You'll notice Judah here acts very contrary to the wishes of his forefathers. Remember Abraham's zeal and absolutely adamant demand of his servant that Isaac not marry a Canaanite, that he find a bride from their ancestral land in Aram. Likewise, Isaac will say the same thing to Jacob. Do not find a wife here. Go back to your ancestral homeland. And Esau, his brother, happily marries Canaanites to his parents' chagrin. Judah here behaves like Esau. He behaves like a lot who separates from the blessed land to pursue his own course. This isn't a good look. It's not going in the right direction. It seems with each generation from Abraham, the family line becomes more corrupted. And Judah is going further down that line. But it gets worse. Look at verses uh, 3 and, and, and following. And she conceived, this wife of Judas, this Canaanite woman, and bore a son, and he called his name Er. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Now that ought to leap out to you, because nowhere in Genesis does God find an individual so evil, he says, I just have to remove you from the face of the earth. He does remove civilization because of its irredeemable evil in the story of Noah. And he does remove cities in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah. Here, it's as if it's as if air is as bad or worse than this pre-Noah, this pre-flood uh, civilization and Sodom and Gomorrah ever was. All this evil in one individual. And God removes him. This is the son of Judah. But it goes on. So he, he's, he, the, Tamar dies without any children. So then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. And then what happens? Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as to not give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. We'll pause there. What is this all about? Now, much of our text this morning and the reason for the sort of caveat that Stephen gave is that the brokenness and suffering and shame we encounter in our text this morning is primarily regarding our sexuality. One of the greatest sources of our joy 
and our life and deep connection to others is our sexuality. And for that very reason, the power, the vulnerability, the tenderness of our sexuality, it's one of the greatest spheres of our sufferings and shame. As we consider the stories of Judah and Joseph, we'll see their painful encounters with sexual brokenness and its scarring effects. So, parents, be warned. But we'll also see the beautiful redemption God brings out. So with that said, what's going on here with Onan? It was a matter of ancient Near Eastern custom that if a brother died without offspring, uh, the other brother in the household was to marry his brother's widow and to provide children so that he would have so social immortality. His name would go on. Onan was not interested in this. He was not interested in providing heirs for his brother because it would split the inheritance. It would mean less for him. You see, he's a lot like Judah who sold his brother for cash money. He's in it. What can I get out of it? This was considered a serious offense. In fact, on the screen from Deuteronomy, uh, you have this law prescribing how to perform. They're called Leverite marriages, where a brother uh, would come in and um, provide offspring for his own brother. And if the man in the case decides not to do this, in other words, he, he, he's asked to marry his brother's wife, but he says, no, I don't want to do that. Then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me, which is what Judah said, perform your duty to your brother-in-law, your brother-in-law's duty. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him, and if he persists, saying, I don't want to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elder, pull his sandal off his foot, and spit in his face. He's publicly shamed for refusing this duty. And she will answer and say, so it shall be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. <laughs> it's a different culture, people. <laughs> but it was a big deal. Onan's sin is more substantial because not, he's not openly refusing to do it. He outwardly agreed to do it. He is more than happy to sexually indulge himself with her without giving up financially. And the Lord loses patience. And it, the, the Hebrew text suggests this wasn't a one-time deal. This was his habit. This is what he did. And Judah doesn't fare much better. Lest we think, well, this is, this is Judah's problem. This is not, I'm sorry, this is his son's problem, not Judah's. This, this isn't Judah's sin, but it reflects Judah. Because Judah seems very much in keeping with the same mindset. The apples don't fall that far from the tree in this case. Look at verses 12. Or we didn't finish verse 11. We'll pick up on 11 and we'll keep going. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brother. So Tamar went and returned to her father's house. Now this is abnormal. Typically, because she was a member of now his household, she would stay under his care. But Judah does not want the financial burden of this widow. 
So he pushes her back to her family's house, her Canaanite family. Judah's just as guilty as Onan. And what we find is he has no intention of bringing Sheila to marry her. Rather than fear God, Judah superstitiously fears Tamar as some sort of black widow. You killed my son Ur. You killed Onan. I'm not going to give you my third son. This is cla- it's almost textbook, isn't it? Sort of scapegoating the woman. She proves to be the only innocent character in this book. The rest of them are absolute fiends. Ur is so evil that God removed him from the face of the earth. And Onan secretly commits these ongoing sins, sexually taking advantage of Tamar. And yet, she's the one who's blamed. This will happen again. Judah descends further into sin after the death of his sons and then the death of his Canaanite wife. We go on to read in verse 12 and following. In the course of the time, the wife of Judah, in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears. Interesting how quickly he's comforted while Tamar is still in her widow's garment in her father's house years later. He went up to Timnah to his sheep shears, which was a festive occasion where there was often probably alcohol, and as we'll see, all sorts of seedy practices taking place. He and his friend Hira, the Adulamite, he's up there with his buddy, and when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance of Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. She knew she saw the writing on the wall. And so she took matters into her own hands. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face, which based on Assyrian laws suggests it might have been the garb of a cultic prostitute to cover herself. Later, she's described a shrine prostitute. So not just a prostitute, but she dresses up as a cultic prostitute. A woman who worked for the gods. Probably a fertility practice. Notice she has to do no enticing of Judah. She has to do no seducing. She doesn't say a word. It's Judah who initiates which says something about his character, doesn't it? It says something about his character that Tamar assumes this strategy is going to work. All I have to do is sit out in the garb of a prostitute and he will approach me. This says something about his practice, doesn't it? This is the kind of man the forefather of Jesus is. Well, we go on. He turns to the roadside and says, Come, let me come into you. So much for small talk. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. Now this is very important. The signet was his identification marker that he wore around his neck, this cord. It was a cylinder that would have had served as his ID, as his credit card. And the staff was uniquely marked 
Each prominent man had his own staff with its own markings and engravings that signified who he was. This is like the wealthy businessman going into the brothel in Vegas and leaving behind his credit card and driver's license. Not a smart move on his part, but she takes it, and the deed is done. Later, Judah goes to fulfill his pledge, and he sends through Hira the young goat. Hira goes back to the same place, and there's no prostitute. And he's wandering around, and he's asking the men, hey, where's the shrine prostitute who was here? He says, there's no shrine prostitute was here. And he goes back to Judah and says, I, I couldn't find her. I asked, and the men said, no, there's been no such woman here. And Judah's embarrassed. He says, well, this, I'm going to be a laughingstock. Just let her keep, you know what, I'll cancel my credit card. I'll get a driver's license. Just leave it be. <laughs> Compare this with Joseph's experience. It's so different. Look at chapter 39, verses 6 and following. <clears throat> we kind of stop short. It's the middle of verse 6. Joseph apparently was not, wasn't, wasn't hard on the eyes. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. It's the only time it's used to describe a male. It usually describes a woman. He was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph, which is another way to saying she set her eyes lustfully upon him. And she said, lie with me. Very different than Tamar, who didn't say a word. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. He's put everything in my charge. There's no one greater in the house than I am, nor has he kept back anything except you because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph has not only an awareness of his duty to his master, but more so a consciousness of, to God. I will not defile the marriage bed. And she spoke to Joseph day after day, and he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or be with her. Daily, she tempted him. And unlike Adam, who listened to the voice of his wife, or Abraham, who listened to the voice of his wife, or Jacob, who listened to the voice of his mother, when they were enticing them to sin, Joseph refuses to listen day after day after day because he's listening to the Lord instead. This must have been brutal, this constant onslaught, but it gets worse. In verse 11, we read, But one day when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men in the house were there, she caught him by the garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. As soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand, and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us, speaking of her master, a Hebrew to laugh at us. 
That can mean to flirt with us or to sexually engage us, or it could mean to mock and humiliate us. I think the latter. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out. He left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. Such is her tale. And now she's gained witnesses. Joseph flees at the desperate moment, leaving his cloak. Now, Jacob left his staff and his, his identity markers on purpose. <laughs> and that will bear witness against him later. Joseph left his garment by accident, fleeing from a sinful, sinful situation, from temptation. It is perhaps this text the Apostle Paul has in mind when he says to the Corinthians, flee sexual morality. Run. In Hebrews 13.4, we read this. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. As God's people, we ought to, like Joseph, have a highly tuned conscience to sexual sin. And we ought to flee. And I know, I know that sexual desire and sin plagues us. It is one of the most vulnerable areas of our lives. Right now, this morning, uh, Sam Myers began a class called Sexuality in the Bible. Uh, next week, he deals with sexual fallenness. I encourage you, if you're interested, to sign up for the class. Um, but Sam also is part of a ministry for, for crew here in the city to help with sexual brokenness. All of us in this room are sexually broken, and it will do us no good to deny it. But to own that and to be humbled by that and to be aware of the dangers. And I want to encourage us, I don't know where you are in the spectrum, if sex is a source of great shame to you or if you've become desensitized through exposure to pornography and other sources to how serious and destructive sexual sin is. But I encourage you, brothers and sisters, to flee from it. Whatever it takes. I know it seems like it's weak and pathetic when Christians have to give up a smartphone to avoid sexual temptation. That is not weak and pathetic. It is wise and self-aware. Whatever it takes, let us flee from this sin. It will wreak havoc and God will judge us for immorality. So you suffer when we commit sin. There, as we're going to see, Ju Judah suffers shame, embarrassment, all the, all the things from his, his own sexual immorality. But you also suffer when you steward your sexuality wisely and well. Joseph suffers for his self-control. Sometimes we think, well, if I'm, if I'm stewarding my sexuality wisely, then it should go well for me, right? Not necessarily, and certainly not at first. Sometimes things will get harder before they get better. And this happens with, of course, 
Joseph, as we'll see, he was falsely accused. But just like Potiphar's wife has a sense of shame, this man, this slave, this Hebrew slave, appealing to Egyptian racism against Asian people, this Hebrew that you brought to mock me, right? That's her shame speaking. And Judah has his own shame too. Well, let's just drop it. That's embarrassing. And that shame will come out in our next scene. Look at chapter 38 with me, verses 24 through 26. About three months later, Judah was told, you know, that's the first trimester, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. Look at Judah's response. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Wow. Is that a Freudian slip? I don't know. Maybe it was a convenient way to get rid of this black widow. I don't know. But certainly Judah here is acting the hypocrite. This has plagued God's people. It plagued Israel. It plagues the church where women are scapegoated and men excused. God doesn't have any patience for this. Look at the prophecy from the prophet Hosea regarding this hypocrisy. The double standards. Judah having his Ted Haggard moment, you know. Uh, if you don't know who Ted Haggard is, you can look it up later. I absolutely irate at the sexual sins of others while indulging sin himself the whole time. But here's what, here's what the prophet Hosea says. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery, for the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes. So I will not play your double standard game. But Judah has, here, here he is in the dust of death. He has a moment where he begins to turn upward by the grace of God. So Judah says, bring her out, let's burn her. Verse 25, as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these items belong, am I pregnant? <laughs> Please identify. Is this the signet ring, cord, and staff belong to you, perchance? This is a very similar moment, right, with Judah's, Joseph's robe was used to identify him to his father, covered in goat's blood. It would be used to identify him as the alleged rapist in chapter 39. And now Judah's own effect, personal effects are used to identify him by the woman he's taken advantage of. But look how Judah responds. It's his David moment when David, after wronging Bathsheba and Uriah, is confronted by Nathan. And Nathan tells a little parable. You know, there was a rich man who had a lot of sheep. And he had some buddies coming over, and he wanted to make pork chops, but he didn't want to sacrifice, or, he, or lamb chops, but he, not pork chops, not in Israel. He wanted <laughs> lamb chops for his buddies. But he didn't want to sacrifice any of his own myriad of sheep. So he took this one small sheep from a poor man who had nothing but that one lamb. And he sacrificed, he cut it up, served it to his buddies. What do you, what do you think of that guy? David's like, kill him. <laughs> Burn him, you know? And then Dathan goes, you're the man. That's you. Well, Judah, his forefather, has a similar moment here. Look what he says in verse 26. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I. 
Not only, he's not just simply acknowledging here that she is no more unrighteous than he is, that she is just as guilty of the sin. She is more right. In fact, the Hebrew literally says, she is righteous, I am not. So now he uses privileged status as patriarch, as the father of the household, not to condemn and judge her, but to vindicate her and confess the truth. She is righteous, I am not. She is justified, I stand condemned. She is behaving like a faithful Hebrew. How? Well, look what he goes on to say. He goes on to say, she is more righteous than I since I did not give her to my son Shayla. She's fighting not because she wants to have intercourse with her father-in-law. She did not lay eyes upon him lustfully. She was faithful to preserve the family line. Here a Canaanite woman acting like a loyal Hebrew and Judah like a Canaanite. How often the saints of God act like the world. And when the world points it out to us, do we confess it or do we charge them with their sexual sin? Do we condemn and belittle and berate? Or do we use our privileged status to confess truth and vindicate those who are being condemned? Remember what Jesus says, before you go and worry about the splinter in your neighbor's eye, check the plank in yours. Judy here has a plank moment. <laughs> yeah, I'm, you're right, I'm wrong. Potiphar's wife will also use her privileged status in the house to falsely charge and condemn. So she, as we go on to see in 39 verses 16 through 20, after she sort of built a case with the, with the household staff, she's now got witnesses, she goes to her husband. We read in verse 16 and following. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. That's her bit of evidence. And she told him the same story. The Hebrew servant whom you brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled the house. As soon as the master heard the words of, that his wife said to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And there he was in prison. Joseph is falsely accused by a powerful person. You know, so often we, this narrative gets used by men who are accused by women of sexual assault the Potiphar wife story, but they often misuse this narrative. Joseph is the slave here. Potiphar's wife is the woman in power. Oftentimes this gets flipped in how it gets retold. And those in power accuse their accusers of false narratives. I don't know the statistics for sure, but the last time I read the upper end of level of sexual accusations of women uh, against men, the highest count is about 10% eventually proved to be fraudulent claims. So it's not the norm. 
claims of sexual assault being lies, it seems. And yet so often that is our knee-jerk reaction. Well, she's lying. And this story gets co-opted. But she's the one in power. She's the one who can manipulate the situation, and she does. It seems, I wonder, whether Joseph, or Potiphar, rather, is doubtful of her story. He's very angry, but he might be angry at the fact that he's losing his best servant because he puts him in prison, whereas attempted rape is a capital offense in the ancient world. So I wonder. I wonder if he's like, well, maybe. But i got to do something. So he throws him in a royal prison. Ironically, Joseph's closer to the king than he's ever been. But he's in the pit of a dungeon. Jesus, however, did not escape with imprisonment. He was falsely accused and he was executed. And his execution, as we confessed, was the sole means by which our very real guilt is removed from us. Which leads to the final and last point quickly here, ascending upward, the upward trajectory. Joseph, despite being at the bottom of the barrel, ascends even there. God is with him. Look at verses 21 and following. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. Sound familiar? It's literally a repeat of the first six verses. But now not at Potiphar's house in the prison. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. So much was he trusted because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. There was also an upward trajectory for Judah. Tamar would give birth to twins in a story that clearly echoes the the, the blessed birth of Esau and Jacob. First, a hand comes out in, in, as Tamar's birthing. And the midwife ties a scarlet thread. Esau was the firstborn. He was covered in red hair, right? And then the hand goes back in. And then Perez, the other son, pops out. And so she names him Perez, which means breach. And the other son named Zerah. Well, Perez will end up being a very significant person in Israel's line. Remember Ruth, the other woman who had children through a Leverite marriage with Boaz? You may not remember that story, but Ruth is a pivotal person, another foreigner, a Moabite, like Tamar, a foreigner who marries into and is loyal to Israel, even when other Israelites are disloyal. And look at her family line that's recorded at the end of the book of Ruth. Now, these are the generations of Perez. The child of Tamar through Judah's sexual immorality. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, and Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amminadab. Amminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. This is the line of the king promised to Jacob. This is the line of the king promised to Judah. This is the line of Jesus. Out of such brokenness came something so beautiful as the life of Jesus. 
wherever you are on the J-curve this morning, you have hope. Maybe you feel guilt. Maybe you feel shame because you sense that your sufferings are somehow your fault. God is for you, not against you. And He is going to bring life out of your suffering. Are you maybe suffering from the sins of others, faithfully enduring in the dust of death? God is with you like He's with Joseph. He's with you in that hard place. He's not abandoned you. So whether it's guilt, where I encourage you to confess like Judah confessed and receive forgiveness, or it's just exhaustion from the onslaught, abide with Him who abides with you. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word and Your truth that gives us hope in our suffering that our suffering is not strange, that we are following the path of Christ Himself. Even when our sufferings are our our own foolishness, Lord, You're using them to produce in us resurrection life. Lord, would You work that even now, we pray in Jesus' name as we sing.